All right, open your Bibles to Zechariah. Who need, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll put one in your hands right now. There's no shame in this game. So if you need one, uh, raise your hand and we'll bring you one. Yeah, our blue shirts have them right now. They'll put one in your hands. If you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. So take that with you. Anybody else? Okay, cool. Uh, Zechariah, so that's, uh, we're wrapping up, we're, we're two weeks away, or not two weeks away, but two, two minor prophets away from wrapping up our series in the minor prophets. Uh, and so that is toward the end, right before the New Testament. If you're looking for it, go to Matthew and back up two, and you'll find Zechariah. So Zechariah has, it's the longest of the minor prophets, has 12 chapters in it, and so it is also the most kind of evangelical one, one that probably points to Jesus more than anything. So you found your place there? Cool, I'm going to read the first six verses uh, so you can uh, just again follow along with me there uh, if you will. Actually, we'll wait. Before I do, let me, let me just tell you a little bit about... Uh, uh, about Zechariah. Um, again, he talks about Jesus probably more than anybody else does in the minor prophets. Uh, you just see it much more clearly in uh, Zechariah than you do other, other places. And so question is who wrote Zechariah? Well, Zechariah wrote Zechariah. Um, and, and so he wrote that as, as, the, uh, as the exiles from Israel were returning back to their homeland, as they were returning from 70 years in captivity in Babylon. We've talked about that a little bit through our Minor Prophet series. Um, uh, and, and so uh, Zechariah's grandfather had brought him back, and young Zechariah was in tow with him. And, and so he came back, and so he knew a lot about what was going on. He saw a lot of things uh, with Israel being in exile and um, uh, this probably happened around 550-ish B.C. is when we think this, uh, this uh, actually began to happen. Cyrus was the king of Persia during the time. If, if you're a history buff, you'll know a little bit about that. Um, uh, Zechariah was a priest. He was a prophet. Uh, he would, uh, again, uh, be very familiar with Jewish worship and, and the things that they did in the temple during that time or, or, or in a place where they worshiped. There, there was no temple at the time, but uh, he was coming back during the time that the temple was, was trying to be repaired. You'll see where it's kind of overlaid with some other major prophets and minor prophets. Um, uh, and so um, uh, what you'll see, is, especially in these last two uh, books of the minor prophets where... Um, uh, Zechariah really he was encouraging these struggling Israelites to keep on keeping on because that God had promised them something and God had promised them to go back to their homeland and so so Zechariah was much more of an encourager. Uh, uh, we'll get into Haggai in a few weeks and, and you'll see he's got a much more cautionary tone to him than Zechariah does. But Zechariah is going to encourage him despite as we get in this these first uh, few chapters today, uh, there's some strange dreams that go on and we'll get into those in a little bit. And you're like, how is he encouraging us with that strange lady flying in a basket with two eagles carrying her? Uh, yeah, it, it actually happens and you'll get to see that. Um, and so the big thing is, uh, he, he really wanted his people to repent. He's like, Hey, I'm calling you to repentance. 
uh, because that's what we need to do as people who kind of run away from God, as people who have kind of gone our own way. And, and even as we've been away and we've kind of cursed God from time to time, uh, Zechariah was one who was calling his people to repentance. And, and so let's get into that because we'll see that in the first, uh, uh, in the first uh, few verses of Zechariah chapter one. So follow along with me there, if you will. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, uh, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, uh, the son of this guy, son of Ido, saying uh, <laughs> something else. Now, I'll tell you that in a second. And, and what the, the good thing that Zechariah does is uh, he gives us a lot of specific dates. And so if, if you're a, a history buff and like to go back and find specific time, uh, Zechariah does a great job of really pinpointing that uh, time. So if, if you want to go back and find those specifically, uh, Zechariah is a good place to kind of figure that out. Uh, verse two, the Lord, uh, so uh, uh, he went and he, he said this, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Um, and go, go back with me in verses three and four and see what he said. Therefore say to them, Let, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil deeds and from your, uh, from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. And then skip down to uh, verse six, kind of about halfway through. And you'll see that it says, so they repented. If you, if you're an underliner in your Bible, I highly encourage you uh, to underline that. And so they repented. Now, let me start out by saying, um, I love, uh, to listen to pastors and preachers who call their people to repentance. I just love to listen to guys that love and care for their churches enough. Though they may have a big stage on TV, a big uh, uh, televangelist ministry uh, where, where their, their ministry goes out over the airways on TV or the radio or the internet or wherever it is, I love that they preach to their people and, and that, that God has called them to that specific church and, and they called them to repentance. Uh, that's the job, that's part of the job of pastoring a church and pastoring a people is to call the people that you're pastoring to repentance, to, to, to admit your sin, to say that I've clearly sinned against you, God, and, and I want to repent, which means to turn away from my sin. We'll get to that uh, in, just a, in just a couple of minutes, but calls his people uh, to repentance, and so he says that as the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. And so I would question, my question to start out today is, uh, how does the Lord deal with us when we sin? And I want you to just think personally, not about this corporate group or, or anybody else in your family or other people that you might think about whenever the preacher preaches, but how does he deal with you whenever you sin? Because the truth is, that happens one way or another. 
Our sin has to be dealt with in some way. And so the question becomes, how does God deal with you personally whenever you personally sin against him? Well, I'll say this. If you are a follower of Jesus, so if you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, you've been born again, then the truth is God cannot love you more than he already loves you, and he cannot love you less than he already loves you. Now, I grew up in some churches where I felt like whenever I sinned, God loved me less. Anybody? Anybody? Can I get a witness? Yeah, okay. And so I felt dirty and ashamed and things like that. And I felt like I'm not even worthy to approach God. I'm not even worthy to approach him because of the things I did last night. And so I, I ran from God most of my life. I ran from him. I didn't want anything to do with him because I was ashamed. Even though I was a Christian, uh, I ran from him. And so some of you may be doing that today. And so you need to hear this pastor tell you today, if you are in Christ Jesus, he doesn't love you. He can't love you anymore because what happens is whenever the righteousness of his son is imputed to you, we'll talk about some of these big words in a second, when it's imputed to you or given to you or laid onto you and covers you, then he can't love you more than he loves his son. And you get the righteousness of Jesus whenever you become a follower of his. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you. It covers you. And so God can't love you more or he can't love you less because you have the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. All God's people said, amen. amen. Yeah, that's a hallelujah time for you uh, uh, stoic Baptists in here. Uh, uh, that, that, that's okay. Come on, where, where are my charismatics in this place? There we go. I, it's charismatic corner down there. Uh, so, uh, so I, I need y'all a little, give me a little more today. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, but, but he can't love us any more than that. Uh, and so, so, and, and the, the theological word for that is God is immutable, which means he never changes. Okay. He doesn't change. He's not moody like your father was. Okay. He's not, he's, he's not moody like your spouse. And I won't say either wife or husband. So, so uh, he, he, he's not moody like them where, the, where their mood changes whenever you sin against them or do something against them. He, he doesn't live in that world. He doesn't change. Um, and, and so your obedience and your repentance once you're born again does not make God like you more. Nor does your sin make God love you less. Okay, for those of you who are, are, are just right, that you're a follower of Jesus, but you've been caught up in some sin right now, it doesn't make God love you less. Again, if you're born again, Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to you, which means it has been given to you. It is credited to your account. So, so think about this, uh, 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 bank, so think about your bank account, Okay. So if, if you debit your account, what does that do? Yeah, it's money going out, okay? And so if it's credited to your account, what does that mean? That's coming in. That, that is money coming in. And so he credits the righteousness of Christ to your account, okay? 
So he, he puts that into your account. And so by him doing that, that means you get all the righteousness of Jesus credited or put into your account. And so God can't love Jesus any less than he already does, right? Right? Okay. You with me here? This, this is some good theological teaching. I need you to understand this because it's important to you and how you live your life. Uh, so God can't love Jesus any less than he does, right? And so if you have repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed or deposited into your account, God can't love you any less, right? right. Yeah, and, and so that's where I want us to live as followers of Jesus, that we are loved and beloved of God's, that he loves us like he loves his son, Jesus. All of your sins are paid in full. And so as the Apostle Paul says in Romans, we, 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 we preached through Romans uh, a couple of years ago and, and preached verse by verse, which is what we typically do. Uh, we did that a couple years ago. Does that mean that because God loves us like he does and because he loves us like he loves Jesus, does that mean that we get to sin all the more so grace will abound all the more? What, yeah, what does Paul say? May it never be by no means. No, that doesn't mean that we just sin more so grace abounds more. Paul said that you're missing the point. He said, because God loves us the way he loves Jesus, why would we want to sin against a God who loves us like that? Why would we want to continue on in our sin? Why would we want to continue on wallowing in our sin? So Paul says, by no means do we want to live that way. But because it is the kindness and the mercy of God towards his people, our sin against such a gracious father should really grieve our own hearts. If you're here and you're involved in some type of ongoing sin, if you're involved in some type of egregious sin against God, and you think, man, it's just another thing, or I'm forgiven, and I'll just live the way I want to, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the grievous nature of our sin. You don't understand the fact that your sin cost Jesus his life. It cost him his precious blood that he poured out for us at the cross. You're living flippantly in the face of your, of your Savior. And that's no way to live. That's a bad understanding of the gospel. And you probably should check yourself to go, am I even a follower of Jesus? If you can live in a way that's very flippant to the God that you say you serve, if you live that way, are you really a follower of Jesus? So that's the tension in which we live as a follower of Jesus, that we can't out the grace of God, but the challenge is not to out the grace of God. Amen? Yeah, so that's not a challenge to us. That's just a truth that we get to live in uh, from time to time, or, or not from time to time, uh, as time rolls on, we get to live in that type of, in that, in that environment. Um, so the only way, if you're here too, and you're outside the household of faith, the only way for you to avoid that wrath of God is, uh, and for the sins that you commit, uh, uh, is do like the people of God did in our text. They repented. It says that in, in verse six, uh, midway through that I ask you to underline, so they repented. 
It means they turned uh, from their sin. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart. That, that the way we feel about sin, the way we feel about God, to turn from our sin and turn to the Lord. Um, Adrian Rogers, uh, a longtime pastor at Bellevue, used to say it, it's a, a turn in a different direction. If I'm going toward my sin and indulging myself in sin, he said repentance means that we're turning and going the other way. We're not continuing on in that pathway towards sin. We're going in the other direction in the pathway towards righteousness. See, what I'm, see that? That's, what he, uh, that's the way he described it. And so I urge you today to repent of your sin, just like, just like Zechariah did in, this, in our text today. To, he urged the people to repent of their sins, to turn from their sins, to put those sins to death, receive the mercy and the grace of God, the gift of eternal life where your sins are forgiven and you're adopted in the family of God. And I'm not talking about some religious ritual or anything at all like that, but I'm really talking about seeing the fact that God loves you. God gave his life for you. He, he, he sacrificed his own son uh, to pay for your sin debt. It cost Jesus his literal life uh, so that you could be forgiven for your sins. And, and so Zechariah urged his people and I urge you today uh, to repent, believe the words of the Lord, believe the gospel. Amen. That's our hope for any of you who are outside the household of faith, maybe struggling with sin today. We'll give you an opportunity shortly. Or if you go now and you're like, Hey preacher, I need to do that right now. Then our, some of our elders will meet you in the back. If you just can't wait any longer, we're happy to talk with you even right now, but there will be a time later in our service where you can come and speak with us and we'll open the scriptures and pray with you. It'd be our joy to do that. Okay. Back to Zechariah. So, um, so th this is three sections. So this will be a three-week sermon series through Zechariah. It could be a lot longer, uh, but we're going we're gonna to wrap this up in three weeks. So this first six chapters today, and whew, that was the introduction. So <laughs> we got a long way to go, people. Uh, first six chapters today, it has eight visions, which are strange visions. Uh, chapter seven and eight has four messages that we'll see. In chapters nine through 14, there's one king uh, that it all points to. And so the theme of Zechariah is, again, just echoing the rest of the minor prophets. Uh, that basic, The basic message through the minor prophets has been, if you return to God, he'll return uh, to you. And, and, and so we, we like to say this because it's true that God always keeps his promises. Uh, and based off of what we're learning, even through the minor prophets, as we're preached to them, um, he, enc uh, he encouraged these, uh, the people of God to abandon their wicked ways, to abandon the places that they've already gone so far and turn back uh, to, to God because he will be there. I, I, I think about it as almost like the prodigal son story in the New Testament. Whenever the prodigal son went away and he was like, man, I, I, dad, give me my inheritance and I'm going to run away and I'm going to do what I did. And basically the prodigal son went out and lived on wine, women and song and, and, and found himself out of money and, and, and out of pride and out of anything that he had, found himself eat, wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating uh, because he was hungry. And so he's like, maybe if I go back to my father, he will, he'll take me back, at least let me be one of his servants. And so if you know the prodigal son story, he came back and, and what does the story tells us? What was the father doing? You remember what the father was doing? He was watching. Yeah. He was looking for his son. He was waiting at any point for his son to come back. And he, the scripture tells us he saw him far in a distance. And what did the father do? 
He, ran, yeah, he gra- gathered up his, the clothes that he was wearing and ran toward his son and embraced his son. And he said, man, I, my son is alive and go kill the fatted calf and let's celebrate because he has come back home. And, and, and so I, I see the same thing in these minor prophets that the, 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 they're calling the people to come back to uh, to come back to God. And I would say the same thing from you. If some of you, maybe you are a Christian, you've just been far off that whenever you turn and you come back to the Lord, he does the same thing. He is right there to embrace you and call you his own, kill the fatted calf, put the, put the best robes on you because you uh, belong to him. So, so now for the next five and a half chapters in the next few minutes, uh, uh, so, uh, we're going to talk about some dreams. You ever had like some crazy dreams before? Anybody have any crazy dreams? Like you just take an ambient or something like, <laughs> I know you two do. <laughs> uh, ask the McDade sometime about the crazy dreams they have. <laughs> it's, it's comical. <laughs> it's worth your time. Uh, do you ever any crazy dreams? If you take some medicine or some ambient or maybe some cough syrup or whatever it is that you got to take to go to sleep or whatever. Well, these are some crazy dreams that go on. And so we're going to get into them. So, uh, so let's jump in. Uh, this first vision is chapter one, verses seven through 17. We're going to read all these. So you got to bear with me because, because we, we got to cover this because it's crazy. Um, So his first vision is like a man riding on a red horse, standing among the myrtle trees, and behind him were red uh, sorrel, which is like a uh, red-colored horse with no black uh, shading in it, uh, which is the most common color of horses, I'm told, and white horses. So red, uh, really red, and uh, white horses. And so that's that's what this first dream is about. So let's, let's read it. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of this guy, uh, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses, which is what I just said. Then I said, what are, what are those, uh, my Lord? Um, the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? So these 70 years, they've been in exile. The Lord's been angry against them. And he's like, hey, how long are you going to be angry, bro? You know? And and so that's the question. And the Lord answered graciously and comforted, gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. He means my heart is set on Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. So those people who think, man, we got it all, we got it all covered. We've got it all. We've got them where we want them. And I'm really, and the Lord's like, I'm really angry with those guys. Um, for while I was angry, but for a little, they furthered the disaster. He's like, I, I relented on them and, the, and they've just gone, they've wreaked havoc on my people. And I'm not really happy about that. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details here because we don't have time, but that's the first vision. Tracking with me? 
All right, second vision. Uh, this is about four horns and four craftsmen. Four horns and four craftsmen. That begins verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel of the Lord which talked, uh, who talked with me, what are those? And he said to me, those are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord answered me, four, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are those coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nation who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter. So you see that? He's like, these are the people that have come and they've scattered my people. And these are the things that I'm, that I'm sending them to just scare them a lot. Okay. That's what we just read about. Third vision uh, is in chapter two. And it's the whole of chapter two. Uh, you're going to see a man with a measuring line uh, in his hands to measure to see what's the width and the length of Jerusalem. And, and so God called him to do that so he could put a wall build the wall around Jerusalem. And so this is what it says. Chapter two, I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to me, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her as a wall of fire around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory up in her midst. You see that? So the Lord's like, hey, we're going we're to let people come back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be a wall of fire around Jerusalem to protect them from now on. Okay? Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, go back home, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eyes. He's like, hey, I love Jerusalem, I love the people of Jerusalem, and you've been messing with my people. But they're going back now because I said they're going back. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know, says, uh, you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and I, you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And he's like, all right, the Lord has been silent for a while, and now he has, wake, he has awakened himself, and he is, he is back on your side. And so go back home, because that's where you belong. That's basically what happened in uh, this, uh, third, uh, this third vision. So that was uh, chapter two. The fourth vision uh, is in chapter three. And so he showed him Joshua the high priest, not the Joshua that you're most familiar with. It's a different high priest, Joshua, but a, a different Joshua. An angel of the Lord and Satan, the accuser. So all these people in the very beginning of this story, uh, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And, and Joshua, Joshua gets clothed in these filthy garments. And the angel's like, remove the filthy, filthy garments from him uh, and, because I've taken away your iniquity. I've taken away your sin. And you no longer have to wear those filthy garments. Let's read it, what it says in chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand and accusing him. Now, again, uh, my, my word Satan has a, a note by it. 
And I'll go and read the note, and it says that is the accuser or the adversary. And that's who you have. If you're a, we all have an adversary. We all have an opponent. We all have someone that is accusing us, and that is Satan. He is against you. He is against you following Jesus. He is against you in, in living a righteous life. He is for you sinning. He is for you indulging yourself in sin. He is for you indulging yourself in a way that... Uh, discredits your body and your family and the name of Jesus. Satan is for that. You have an adversary that says, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Did God really say that? Really? That's your adversary. Whenever you hear that voice, that is your enemy telling you, ah, it's okay to go in and indulge yourself in some sin. Sorry, back to, back to verse three. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. There it is. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's what he does for us. A picture of what he does for us when he saves us. He takes away our filthy sin and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. That's a beautiful picture. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the priest, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, uh, the branch. See that? That branch is capitalized in my Bible. He's talking about Jesus there. I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. See what he's saying? He's like, I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to bring joy back to you. Even after all this time away, I'm going to bring time of fellowship back to you. I'm restoring these things back to you. That is the fourth vision. Fifth vision is um, a vision of a golden lampstand with a bowl on top and seven lampstands with two olive trees beside it. Okay. You know what that means? Let's read chapter four. And the angel who talked to me came again. So, so all these are happening. These, it's like this one big huge nightmare, if you would, uh, or this one big dream. This keeps happening over and over again. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all with gold and a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it. Sounds like some dreams I've had before. You know, I'm like, I ate some bad sushi or something. And there's this lampstand and a bowl and... Uh, and some olives, I don't know, uh, with seven lips on each of the lamps uh, that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right bowl and one on the right on the, of the bowl and other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who uh, talked with me and answered said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, well, no. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. See, that, that's a flat place. This mountain shall become a flat place. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also uh, complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel, which means he's making everything straight again, which means he's putting everything back in order. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which reigns throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And the second time answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive tree? Hello, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out. And he said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. And so that was just a big conglomeration of stuff. Uh, and he's like, man, will you explain this to me? Because it's really hard for me to understand this kind of crazy dream. And so the Lord tried to explain a little bit about what that particular version was about. We'll keep going because I'm going to tie all this together shortly. Chapter 5 is uh, the sixth vision. Uh, first four verses. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I, and I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stone. So he's like, all these people that have deceived you, all these people who have bared false witness against you, they're about to get their due. It's coming. And I'm about to clean all that mess up, and we're going to return some things to you. And that's what that dream was about, okay? And so then he goes on. Um... This is uh, the seventh vision, so we're almost done. So this is like a basket going out, and, and this is like the scary one, okay? It, you, you're gonna, this is, you know, this is where you're deep sleep, and, and like your weird dreams get as weird as they could possibly get. This is the one, all right? Uh, so let's read it. So then the, and my heading says, the vision of a woman in a basket. It's creepy. Makes you get up out of bed and go get in somewhere else to sleep. <laughs> then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is, what's going out. And I said, what is that? What are those? He's like, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. So these baskets are flying out and all the sin of all the people in all the land is tucked inside this basket. Okay. And behold, the leaden cover, so it's got an it's iron cover on top of the basket. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and a woman sitting in the basket. Y'all can talk about that at home. Uh, but he lifts up the, the iron lid on this basket and this woman comes out of it. <laughs> And he said, this is wickedness. I'm not even going to ask for an amen there. And, 
and he thrust her back in the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So you see what happened? So this basket's there and it's flying around and it's full of the iniquity, all the sin in it. And he opens up the lid and this woman comes out and I can't even imagine what that woman looked like. And he was like, oh my goodness, what's happening? And he's like, push the woman back down and slams the lid back on. That's what just happened. He's like, I don't want anything to do with that. Verse nine, then I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket. So these other two women come flying in (laughs) like this and they come down. Can you imagine like seeing this whole thing? You're like, what? What is going on? Uh, And these two women with wings like storks, which is weird anyway, um, wings like storks come flying in and they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. So these storked winged women come down and grab that basket of sin and the woman. Um, Then I said to the angel who talked with me, uh, where are they taking that basket? Uh, he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. And he's like, remind me not to go to Shinar. Uh, so that was the seventh vision. If you have that dream, whew, God bless you. Eighth vision and the last vision begins in chapter six, verses one through eight. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. And I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horse goes down, uh, goes toward the north country. The white one goes after them and the dappled ones go down to the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were uh, impatient to go and patrol the earth and they were ready to go. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrol the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. All right. Eight weird visions is what he just, what, what we just read about. And that, that's what this, that's how Zechariah starts this whole thing. And I'm sure in all your strange dreams, you've probably had never eight together, probably not even like that. Uh, and I hope you have it anyway. Uh, and, and so what do these things mean? He, here's the point of all the visions. And, and so we read them and we're not going to go back and find them just for sake of time. But if you want to go back afterwards, you can find them and you can see where we talked about it and we read through what they were. But here, here's the point of the visions. One, they predicting God's protection for his people. So God was sending them back into the land that after being in exile, he was sending them back into the land. He said, I'm going to protect you when you go in there. And they showed not only God's protection, but his purification of the priesthood. He's like, I'm going to reestablish the priesthood with you, and I'm going to purify the priesthood the way it should be, the way it should have been all along, and the way it should be from this going forward. I'm going to purify the priesthood. And uh, a, a third part of that is it symbolized the rebuilding of the temple. He was like, I want you to go back, and I want you to reestablish the temple that was actually within your midst. Fourthly, uh, was God's judgment over evil. Think about the basket being taken out and delivered somewhere else. God's like, I'm going to take this and I'm going to take it away and I'm going to judge it uh, because evil is going to be judged. Um, 
the, the fifth thing that w- they were a part of is the removal of sin from God's people. God doesn't, want, God, uh, God doesn't have a desire for God's people to live in the midst of their sin. I would, that's what we talked about in the very beginning. It is for you, Christian, not to continue to indulge yourself in sin. To put away the sin that so easily besets us. Paul talks about that. He says that we can't run the race that we're called to run if we're harboring sin and we're carrying sin with us so much that we're supposed to put that sin behind us and put that sin away from us. And then lastly, he talks about a little bit about the coming of the Messiah. That there will be one who will come and set all this straight again uh, in, in, in the days to come. And so this entire book of Zechariah uh, that we'll get to in, in, in the coming two weeks that we'll kind of finish up uh, what, what this book is about is about the promise of God being fulfilled. That God made a promise and he's going to fulfill that promise and that Jesus will be the one to come again. That Messiah will come. Uh, that's what uh, Zechariah was talking about. There will be a Messiah. There will be a deliverer. There will be one that comes and sets things straight again. There, there's a lot of symbolism and direction that is listed uh, here in, or that is talked about here in Zechariah. Uh, uh, especially about the temple being rebuilt is one of the things that, that was pointing to the Messiah that it was to come. And so the, the prophecy truly that Zechariah talked about truly was something that was pointing forward for about 500 years. Again, uh, you know when, we kind of know when Zechariah was, uh, was written in, in, in 500 and some odd uh, BC. And that was pointing ahead to whenever you get to the fact that Jesus comes on the scene. That the Messiah, the deliverer, the one that's going to set us truly free would actually come in 500 years. Because Soon after this, the Lord goes silent. If you know anything about your Bible, between the Older Testament and the New Testament, there's like 400 years of silence where nobody hears from the Lord. There's no prophets that are saying anything. There's no prophets that are giving anything. Thus says the Lord. There's nobody speaking for the Lord. There's just silence. And the truth is, um, uh, that silence would be pierced by the cry of a baby. The thing that we just celebrated, we just celebrated Christmas, which we celebrate, the church celebrates as the coming of Messiah, the coming of Jesus into the world, the coming of him entering into the world, and again, being pierced, the silence, 400 years of silence being pierced by the cry of a baby. And what we know was surely not a silent night. This baby would go on to fulfill what the prophet said in chapter 2. I'll read these two verses, verses 10 and 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and I shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This fulfilling that very prophecy. So what do we do with all this? I'm going to wrap this up. What do we do with all of this Old Testament prophecy? How do we deal with this today? Um, first, I think this. God was calling his people back to himself. That, that, that's, we clearly see that. That God was saying, you've been in exile for so long, and now I'm calling you to come back to me. I'm going to make the pathway straight, and I want you to come back to me. Though they had been dispersed for what many would say was far too long, God was not slow in calling them back to himself. And and so maybe some of you are in that very same place. 
Maybe some of you are in the same place that, that the people of God found themselves in even that. You're far from God. For whatever reason, you're just far from God. You don't feel his presence, you don't sense his presence, you don't see his blessings in and around you, but you are far from God. The life you live is not lined up with what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, and you are far from God. Well, I'll say this, God knows you. God sees you. God knows everything about you. And today may be the day that he's calling you back to himself. For however long it's been for you, today may be the day that God is calling you back to himself. It's time, oh child of God, to re-engage with the lover of your soul. We, we see this regularly and, and with other pastors we talk to that, that uh, churches, that, that people that attend churches just do it kind of haphazardly now. If you get somebody that comes to be part of your church family twice a month, most people, most churches, most pastors, most anybody that tracks church attendance and, and people that are part of, that call churches home, they go, man, if you get somebody twice a month, you're pretty fortunate. Man, that's not what God calls us to. Church attendance doesn't make you a Christian. Church attendance doesn't get you more gold stars. Remember, we've talked about this lots of time. You already have all the gold stars from the Lord if you're a Christian. He gives you all the gold stars in the beginning. So you don't get merit with God, but you get to for keep forming that relationship, that deeper relationship with God and his people. Just like God called Zechariah, among many others, back, maybe he's calling you to return to him, to his people, to his church. So God was calling his people back to himself. Secondly, God hates sin. God hates sin. God hates the sin that you find yourself in the midst of. That sin that you have immersed yourself in, that you think nobody knows, your parents don't know, your spouse doesn't know, your boss doesn't know, or whatever. God hates that sin. And maybe you're here today. Maybe, maybe God has sovereignly brought you here today to hear that very thing from me. That God hates the sin that you found yourself neck deep in. See, that sin, all our sin, cost Jesus his life. Now, sin may have cost you other things. Sin may have cost you your reputation. Sin may have cost you your past. Or, or maybe that sin that you're indulged in today has yet to cost you anything, but it's coming. It, it's coming. Sin is destructive. And child of God, I would say this. Though Jesus forgives us for all our sins, remember where sin abounds, what? Grace, Grace much more abounds. And so that is true. And where, but where, where um, Jesus forgives us of all our sins, that glorious truth doesn't give us the right to just keep on sinning. Paul talks about that. Uh, in our study of Romans, he said, do we sin more that grace will abound more? By no means. God hates 
the sin that you find yourself indulging yourself in. Maybe it's time to repent of your sin. I'll just, no, not maybe. It's time to repent of your sin. Ask for some help in fighting your sin. Stop running, and just like God calls these minor prophets and his people, return to the Lord. One almost final thing. Chapter 6, verse 15 says this, And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. See, the temple in that day was of great importance to the people of the Lord. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's where the people of God gathered together to worship the Lord. Honestly, it's kind of the same for the people of God today. The gathering of yourselves together to worship the Lord is a gift from God. We, we, we say that, those of us who've been here from the beginning, man, we can say that this church, this church family, is just a gift from the Lord. If this is your church home or you're trying to find a church home, man, I'm telling you, what God has done here is just miraculous and it's sweet and it's glorious. It's wonderful. We're, we're, we're kind of a bunch of jacked up people. But the Lord loves us and has made us his own. And has called us to love and to care for one another and to love and to reach lost people who don't know Jesus yet. I'm encouraged whenever I see you here. I'm encouraged when I see you opening your Bibles and reading your Bibles and following along with whoever is preaching. I'm, encouraging when, I'm encouraged whenever we lift our voices together. I know the music's loud here, but you, the Lord, you're singing to the Lord. But I'm encouraged whenever I look around and I see people singing, men and women and children singing songs unto the Lord. I'm, op I'm encouraged whenever we open the scriptures together and allow the Spirit of God to teach us His Word. And now, despite what anybody tells us, what our enemy specifically tells us, tells us, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is not the temple. This is, uh, this is brick and mortar that we meet in. But our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, the New Testament tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's a new year. Start that again. Let that be a regular occurrence. Dads, fathers, lead your family in this way. Moms, encourage your family to get out of bed and, and make it here on Sundays. Unless you're providentially hindered, be here. Why do we say that about coming here? One, we preach the gospel every week. That Jesus is the only hope for us in life and eternity. We sing the gospel here. Our, our music, we, we're very particular about the songs we sing. Because I say it all the time, you're going to remember these songs probably more than you remember this sermon. We sing gospel-rich music here that you'll sing later throughout the week. We display the gospel in the sacraments. We're about to observe the Lord's Supper. And we, we, we observe the Lord's Supper every day whenever we're reminded that it costs Jesus his body and his blood to cover our sin debt. And we find hope in the gospel that there's salvation found in no other. And just like God was calling his people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, maybe he's calling some of you back to himself today.
Remember the call to return. That was the message, to return. That's the message to you today, to return to following the Lord. Rebuild the temple of the Holy Spirit. You yourself live today and tomorrow and all the days of your life for the glory of his name and the fame of his name. And then finally, I'll say this. Some of you don't need to return to Jesus. Some of you need to turn to Jesus for the first time. For the first time in your life, I'm not talking about being religious. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about giving. I'm not talking about any about that. I'm talking about turning to Jesus in faith and repentance and going, I'm clearly outside the household of faith. I clearly need a savior. I clearly need to be saved that if I die today, I split hell wide open. That I need to turn to Jesus for the first time in mercy and, and, and finding his grace to say, I need to be saved. I need to become a follower of yours today. You're far from God. A life of destruction. Following the prince of the power of the air. Outside the household of faith. Today, will you repent of your sins, find rest, find hope, find forgiveness, find life and love Turn to the Lord. Turn to Jesus. That's our hope for you today. Let's pray together.